We are in Hebrews chapter 3, and uh, we jumped into this section last time, and uh, I want to rehash it. Hopefully, we'll be dipping into chapter 4 as well. Um, we find ourselves in a very uh, interesting and actually kind of hard to interpret passage of Scripture. We mentioned last time that a cursory reading of this passage might lead someone to believe, oh man, this is saying that you can lose your salvation. For example, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so, um, this can be a difficult passage, but as we mentioned last time, the key to understanding this passage correctly is understanding the illustration that's being used correctly, um, and that helps us guide our interpretation. Uh, before, in chapter 3, we were looking at the faithfulness of Christ, how he's better than Moses. He is faithful over God's house as a son, while Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. And so, because he is faithful, we should cling to him. And then in verse 7, he begins with a warning by quoting Psalm 95. That's what he's doing in verses 7 all the way down through verse 11. He's quoting Psalm 95, and he is referring to the people in the wilderness, the generation, the unbelieving generation, who were brought out of Egypt and fell in the wilderness because of unbelief. Let's go ahead, just for review, we'll begin reading in verse 7. We will go down, uh, we'll go down to the end of the chapter, all right? So follow along as I read. Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, saw my works for forty years. And therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They do always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not the, all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell on the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we've seen that the illustration that he uses to warn the readers is those who were unbelieving in the wilderness. They, we, we mentioned that they saw the works of God, but they did not know the ways of God. And we asked the question, how is that possible? How can you see all the works of God, but not know his ways? How can you experience all his blessings, but never actually know him personally? And we walked through some examples of how that's actually not that hard to believe, that it happens every day. It, it happens all around us. It happens throughout history. And so this unbelieving generation were those that saw his works, but while they were seeing his works, they were always going astray in their hearts. They had disbelieving hearts. Or, as verse 12 says, they have evil, unbelieving hearts. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, just like they should have been warned, you need to be warned that you don't have this same unbelieving heart. 
you could say that this group of people that fell in the wilderness, that did not enter his rest, were along for the ride, but they hadn't bought in to the message. Can we think of that happening in the church today? Absolutely we can. That it's very easy to... I mean, I was, I was raised in church. I know it's, it's very easy to go along for the ride. Um, and in fact, go along for the ride and convince yourself that, that you are a Christian. When in reality, not actually having embraced it. And so this is a serious warning. And, and, and I'll say at the outset, this particular passage isn't the most feel-good, uh, warm and fuzzy passage. All right? But we can't just focus on the warm and fuzzy passages of Scripture. If we do that, we're not taking in the whole counsel of God. Sometimes we need that, uh, that firm warning, that wake-up call. And that's definitely what this passage is. So we've seen the illustration. And we've seen what he's warning us about, an evil, unbelieving heart. And so therefore, he gives us commands. There are two commands that we see based off of this warning. Can anyone find the two commands based off of this warning? I've zoomed in on the general area in case you want a, a hint. Take care. Take care. There's one. Take care and exhort one another. Take care and, do, and exhort one another. So here you are, a church all coming together. I want you to beware. I want you to take care, lest there be in any of you uh, actually an evil, unbelieving heart. Just like the people of Israel all left Egypt together, but not everyone entered the promised land, the church is filled with people who won't go to heaven someday. The reality is there are many within this household of God who are going astray inwardly, and they were going astray inwardly because they had an evil, unbelieving heart. We have to take into account a reality that we see all the time in church. People who grew up in church say they fully believe Jesus, but then later in life rejected Christianity. I, I knew people in high school who were considered the model Christians. They served, they read their Bible, they witnessed. They themselves would say they were Christians. But if you were to meet those same people today, they would say Christianity is a joke, the Bible is not true, and they're pursuing a completely different lifestyle in every sense of the word. And the question we need to ask how do we account for situations or examples like that? How do we grasp that scripturally? And I don't think we can simply conclude, well, they always knew secretly that they weren't a Christian. Right? That they were always just playing pretend. But inwardly, they were, you know, they're conniving. They're like, ha-ha, I've tricked everybody. Now, sometimes that's the case, right? But you know what often is the case? They, they think they're Christians. Right? If you were to ask someone who's an atheist today that grew up Christians, you know what they would say? They'd say, when I was younger, yes, I, I believed it, but now I don't. How do we, if we hold to the truth that once you are saved, you are always saved, and I firmly believe that. When Christ saves you, he is yours. How do we account for stories like that? And I think this passage starts to point in that direction. 
But how do we respond to this danger, this warning? Number one, take care. Number two, exhort yourselves. When you see take care, I see this in terms of examine yourself. Watch. If you already fully know that you have an evil, unbelieving heart, you wouldn't need to watch out, right? The very nature of the command shows that it's easy to deceive yourself. You can convince yourself that you're okay. I go to church. I memorize verses. I'm known as an active serving member at the church. And you can convince yourself, I'm fine. John MacArthur once said, a contributor to self-deception is a failure of self-examination. Charles Spurgeon said, the man who does not like self-examination may be pretty certain that things need examining. (laughs) And so we need to take care. We need to watch out. So what are we looking for? What is an evil, unbelieving heart looking for, right? This is what we're called to watch out for. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, one note on this word, fall away. Uh... I'm not a fan of how that's phrased. It, it makes it sound like a, like a whoopsies, right? Like, oh, I fell away. Oh, no, what happened? I lost my salvation, right? No, that's not what's happening here. This is an active verb. This is an active sense. This is, this is a turning away. This is a rebellion, right? And this is in line with what we see in the example that they did not know his ways and they're going astray in their hearts. They are, they are rebelling. And so what they're saying is here is take care that there isn't in any of you this unbelieving heart that results in an external rebellion, right? And there's a connection there, that an unbelieving heart results in external rebellion. What does an evil, unbelieving heart look like? I'd say, first of all, an evil, unbelieving heart is one that is always going the opposite direction of God's word, right? Always going astray in their hearts, as we see earlier. This is different than falling into sin or stumbling, right? We all do that. Think of the unbelieving people being led in the wilderness. They were always grumbling against God. They were always provoking God to anger. They were always seeking to rebel. There was something in their heart that was always pushing against. Pushing against. That sign of an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart is one that knows God's word, but doesn't know God's word. You know what I mean by that? There's a, there's a surface level knowledge, right? I know the verses. I've quoted it since Awana, right? Um, having a knowledge of God and his word is not the same thing as having a love for God and his word. And the people of Israel knew God's law, even said that they would fully obey God's law, but they had no love for God. They only cared about what God would do for them. We see that all through the wilderness. God, why aren't you giving me something else? I'm tired of this manna. Give me something else. Give me some meat, right? There is always this discontentment. They were always going astray in their hearts. And, and, and while we can very easily deceive ourselves into thinking we're okay, the writer gives us a very stern warning. Watch out. Look at your own heart to see if there's in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The, self, the reality, the danger of self-deception is so real that we must be humble enough to, ask, to say, I need to look at my own heart. There's a, um, you've, I'm sure you've heard of the name uh, John Piper. He has a son. Um, 
who is, his name is Abraham Piper, who, who turned away from Christianity. He's, he's an atheist. And he, he's taken it upon himself to um, release a bunch of Instagram videos and things like that, talking, kind of, kind of bashing Christianity and, 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 and saying what's wrong with it and everything like that. And uh, there's one video that he posted that, that he talked about um, signs that he saw looking back that he was losing his faith. And he said, I never prayed. I never prayed. I performed prayed, he said. He said, which is really important part, a really important part of being in the community. You need your group to know that you're in, right? And so I prayed, but outside of when I needed to, there was no, there was no real, there was no real relationship there, right? There was no connection. There was no, there was no fellowship. And while he was convincing himself as he was in it, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe this. As he looked back, he said there was there was something missing there. There was there was there was something lacking. And the way he described it was, you know, people talk about having a mustard-sized seed of faith, right, that can move mountains. He said, I had a mustard-sized seed of faithlessness that blossomed into full-on apostasy. Examine yourself, leading to fall away or rebel. We need to be humble enough to look at our own hearts. The second exhortation is to exhort each other every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When you see this phrase, this word today, you see it's in quotation marks in our English reference, it's because it's in reference to, way back up here, this today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So I, in other words, this is, today is a time of opportunity. Right? It's here. Don't harden your hearts. So, verse 13, while as long as it's called today, exhort each other every single day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think it's interesting how the, the, the commandment to exhort each other every single day implies how quickly it takes for our hearts to be hardened by sin. It doesn't say exhort one, one other once a year. Once a month. Every day. It doesn't take long for us to be deceived by sin. It doesn't lo- take long for our hearts to be hardened by sin. When you see someone else in church whose life is completely incompatible to Christianity, what a tragedy it would be if all we did was shake our head and say, I hope God gets a hold of them. I hope somebody talks to them. No. Exhort each other. Exhort each other every day. And this passage is imploring you, exhort each other every single day while it is called today. Why? Because sin is deceitful. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we're okay. And just like this, this people in the wilderness deceive themselves into thinking they're okay, yet they have this evil, unbelieving heart. We need to look at our own hearts to see if we are truly following Christ. Any questions? <laughs> Comments? Again, I'll, yeah, Mike. I've been writing down all kinds of things that's going through my mind, but uh, I, I guess starting from the last four words is our need to love one another in fellowship. Mm-hmm. Because if we know each other better, yeah. then we, we see what's going on and we can help uh, minister to one another. That's exactly right. Yeah, it, it shows the necessity of us being connected, right?
Um, because if we're not, then the danger is much stronger. Yeah. I just realized this fits very well with your new series on Sunday night with speaking the truth. And yes, <laughs> that's true. This is a great. We'll probably hit this at some point in the series. Um, yeah, it's very true. Like it shows not only the need but the urgency of us speaking the truth in love to one another. Um, well, let's continue on because he is not done yet. Um, Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now again, someone can say to you, look at this verse and say, see, this verse is telling you you can lose your salvation. Right? Before we panic, let's look at the meaning of the text before that. Notice this. It says, we have come. You grammar nerds, what tense is that? Perfect tense. Yes, have, come is the perfect tense. The perfect tense speaks of a completed action with continued results. We have already come to share in Christ. Now, if it would read, for we will share in Christ if we hold our confidence to the end. Now that sounds like you can lose your salvation, right? But it's actually saying that holding our confidence is an evidence of that completed reality that has already happened, right? We have come to share with Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He's not saying, you know, you can only share in Christ if conditional on you is dependent on you to hold firm your confidence. He's saying, no, the, the, the evidence that you have already been united to Christ, that you are his, is that you're holding your original confidence firm to the end. In fact, there are many multiple indicators that he's not referring to a loss of salvation here. Right? We're not talking about a group of people that were once saved and then lost it. How do we know that? If we skip back up to verse 10, how was the unbelieving generation described? Was it, they were following me and then they went astray? No. They always go astray. This is just what has always been the case. Their default mindset, it continues, they have not known my ways. Again, it points to something that has always been true of this particular group. While they had seen the works of God, they had never known his ways. And so this warning is given to us. The, 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 the verse ends, or the chapter ends with a series of questions. And I think these questions are really meant to just solidify by a question and answer format to make sure we get who he's talking about here and who he's not talking about here. First question. All right. So question number one. Who heard God's word but rebelled? Answer number one. Everyone who left Egypt. Okay. So he's saying like that whole generation Right? Minus two, right? Joshua and Caleb. This whole group experienced the deliverance, right? And yet they were the ones who heard, but, not, but they rebelled. Question number two. Who were the ones that God was provoked with for 40 years? Answer? Those who sinned, right? Those who sinned. 
Third question. Question number three. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? Answer. Those who were disobedient. Okay. Now. I've been disobedient. Does that mean I won't enter his rest? What, do we, what does he mean by disobedient here? That's your lifestyle. It's your lifestyle. Yep. That you've turned away from God. You've turned away. Look at the next verse. Unbelief. Unbelief. Okay. So when you see disobedience in this passage, and you think, well, I've disobeyed. Right? I haven't lived a perfect life. Does it mean I'm not going into heaven? No. When you see disobedience, it means unbelief. Let me show you why I know that. If you skip down in our passage, we see disobedience again. Failed to enter because of disobedience. Right? This is uh, chapter 4, verse 6. I'm skipping ahead real quick. And then... Let's see, hold on. Da, 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 da. Let me see. I'm missing it. 11. 11. Thank you, thank you. Same sort of disobedience. So he's talking about a specific one, right? Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What is the disobedience that kept people out of the rest, out of the promised land? We see in verse 18 or 19, unbelief. Okay? So, we're not saying, well, if you struggle, if you disobey God's word, if you're not a perfect Christian, then you can't enter heaven. That's not what it's saying. Disobedience means unbelief. Okay? They didn't make it because they had unbelieving hearts. So who fell in the wilderness? Unbelievers. There are those within the church who publicly profess faith, but do not personally possess faith. And when you publicly profess faith, it's very easy to convince yourself that you personally possess faith, while all the while lacking the actual fruit of a saved life. So... There's the application. You can be deceived, so take care. Watch. Be careful. Others can be deceived, so exhort each other every day. Right? The writer doesn't know who within this group of people are saved and unsaved. Right? He's just giving a general warning. Everybody, I don't care who you are. Right? I can't see your heart. I don't know. I don't care how long you've been in the church. You need to consider your own life. That's what he's saying. All right. Any any thoughts, questions before we jump into chapter four? Yes, Nancy. I was just wondering um, in verse fourteen, mm-hmm. the if. Sometimes in other places in Scripture, the if is translated roughly since. Mm-hmm. Could you do that substitution there? Since indeed we hold. Uh, I'm trying to the, the official term for that is it second class something or other. When, the, when, it, when an if clause is an actual implied reality, like, a, like I think an example of that would be in Philippians, which is if there's any fellowship in love, any comfort in the Spirit, that's really meaning since, right? Since there's this, this is true. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is, this is a conditional clause, right? Um, but again, the condition isn't on us. You know, this doesn't have to be true in order 
for the, in the order of priority, it's not first this, whoops, uh, you know, it's not first this and then this, it's first this results in that. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. The if is, if that, it's a question if it's for us to, it wants us to question our own obedience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, just, just, just to kind of entertain this a little bit. What about someone who's constantly, constantly doubting their genuineness, right? Like, I just don't know. Like, how do I know if I'm holding for my original confidence to the end? And they're just beating themselves up and just inwardly examining themselves all the time and they can't ever come to an answer. <laughs> well, it's very real, right? I mean, we don't know our own hearts, right? We just talked about how deceitful our hearts are. So how do we know? Right? Any, any thoughts? Like, how, how would you help that person? Dennis? I believe, from what you've taught us today, that a person that does not know where he's at, who has doubts, I think one of the first things I would look at and talk to him about, do you pray? Mm-hmm. Do you do you sit there and get on your knees, or however you want to pray, do you pray to the Father? Yeah. And I think you want to find anything to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, every Christian will say not enough, right? Like, we don't pray enough as we should. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I think, you, you know, Colossians on Sunday, we talked about the fruit of, of gospel taking root in our lives is faith, hope, and love, right? It's just those simple, basic, genuine fruits of righteousness. Um, and faith would, be, would express itself in genuine prayer, right? Um, I, I think additionally we could say, for the person who's genuinely concerned about the state of their own heart, and they're like, oh, do I really cling to Christ? I want to cling to Christ. To me, now I'm not going to like assure them for them, but to me, I hear that, I'm like, that sounds like someone who really wants to cling to Christ. That doesn't sound like someone who's constantly going astray in their hearts, saying, I don't care. It's for the people that say, yeah, I'm fine, I don't care. That, it's for those people that this strong warning, take care, wake up, right? It, it's, if someone's walking toward a cliff, you don't like, you know, try to pull them back by um, sharing with them the, the joys of the scenery behind them, right? You say, no, there's a cliff in front of you. Stop, right? And so that, that's, I think if there's a genuine concern of where my heart is, that's, that's actually, I think, a good sign rather than, than a callousness or a carelessness. That's the message version, right? Um, no, yeah, I think so. There's a passage in First John that says, um, "If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts." Yes. Right. In that area. Yeah. yeah that, that there's that our own hearts can condemn us, and the reality of Scripture, the reality of the gospel, is greater than even our own self doubts. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. And it's a really important note when we talk about unbelief, we're not talking about doubts. Those are two different things. Or failure, absolutely, right? To say, oh, you doubt, you're not a Christian. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I doubt, okay? Unbelief is a always going astray in their hearts leading to a utter rebellion, right? David. 
also, I believe, Satan uses an accusatory yes. approach mm -hmm. on us, and he accuses us before the Father, as we know. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times, not exclusively, but a lot of times those doubts are are Satan trying to get you yes. to feel guilty and to feel worthless and to feel like a failure. Yeah. Yes, yeah, true. And I just wanna I just wanna throw this little teaser in there, okay, to make sure we'd see where we're going. This warning is gonna go all the way down through chapter four, but then look what's at the end of chapter four. Verse 14, since we have a great high priest who's passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. Let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, right? So at the end of all this, he's going to go back to the work of Christ, and he's standing as our high priest. And when Satan accuses us, he is standing there interceding for us, right? And so... Really, this warning is bookended at the beginning with the faith, faithfulness of Jesus compared to Moses. It's going to end with the faithfulness of Jesus. And so this whole discussion needs to, be, needs to be framed in that way. That it is not ultimately about, I'm so faithful, so I'm safe. It's Christ is faithful, and I'm clinging to him. I, I think as we go into chapter 4, this, again, his argument is going to continue to become more clear. And again, this is still pretty stark, serious stuff. Um, but again, let's just follow scripture and see what it says. Um, remember, chapter divisions are additions to the text. They're not part of the original, right? So, so really, chapter 4, verse 1 is continuing the same thought. Um, and we see a therefore. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Okay, so the theme of rest is seen in verses 11 and 18 of chapter 3 both in reference to the promised land. Is he talking about the promised land here? The promise of entering his rest still stands. So he's saying it's still in front of us. Okay? He's picking up the theme of rest from the promised land. So what is this rest that he's talking about? Alright, so we actually see this theme of rest all over the place in this chapter. We see it in verse 1. We see it in verse 3. Entering into his rest. We see it twice in verse 3. In verse 4, we see uh, God rested on the seventh day. Verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains that some have to enter it, meaning rest. Verse 7, Again, he appoints a certain day. And again, that's in reference to a day of rest. Verse 8, first Joshua had given them rest. Verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest. Verse 10, God's rest also rested from all his works. Verse 11, let us strive to enter into that rest. Can anyone guess what this passage is about? <laughs> rest. Now, what does he mean by rest? He uses the term rest in a lot of different ways, okay? In other words, he doesn't use the term rest to mean the same thing every time. In verse 3, what is rest referring to? We believe, those who have believed entered, enter that rest, for as he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. What's this rest here in the quotation? 
I think in this case, in the quotation, it's the promised land. Right? He's quoting the illustration. Um, verse 4. What rest is he referring to in verse 4? Yeah, well, the, the seventh day of creation. He's spoken somewhere, he's so, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way God rested from all his works. Verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So there's, there's another day in connection with the, the people in King David's time. And then verses 9 through 10, the remains of Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And I think this is really referring to um, the work of redemption. All right? So he also makes the point that the rest for us is not the promised land. Verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, so he's saying rest was the promised land, but there's another rest that, that is ahead of us. So what's he doing here? When you hear the term rest, he's using it as a summary statement to mean something. Using the rest of the promised land as an illustration. And this is a rest that is a promise still available to the people of God. So if I were to summarize it, when we see the promise of entering his rest still stands. Rest would be a summary statement for everything we have been promised in Christ Jesus. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus, we have been giving, we've been given exceeding great and precious promises, which will culminate in the future resurrection and eternal kingdom, where we will enjoy the very presence from, of God and rest from all our works as we see in verse 10. So this is a future rest, right? This is, this is the culmination of everything we have in Christ. It's like a journey. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. It's all in front of us. So back to verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So he's saying, since you're still on the journey, and he gives us two more applications, two more commands. What's the command in verse 1? Let us fear. The other one is down in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So here is the point. Since the promised land, your promised land, your rest, is in front of you, fear and rest. I'm sorry, fear and strive. A little bit different, okay? And we're a little bit nervous about commands like this because we don't want to communicate some sense of legalistic rigor or works-based salvation. We don't want to create burnt-out Christians, so we typically don't lead with applications like be fearful and strive, <laughs> right? I mean, out on our church sign, it says, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We actually prefer to talk about Christianity in terms of rest and trust. So, why are we called to fear and strive? Well, let's look at it. 
Let's go back up to the first command. Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let's fear. Let's ask ourselves two questions. What does it mean to fear? And who or what are we supposed to fear? First of all, what does it mean to fear? The Greek word for fear, phobos, can be used in one of two senses. Either an apprehensive state, I'm afraid, I'm trembling, or two, a profound measure of respect for, right? Think fear of God. All right. Think carefully. When he says, let us fear, what sense is being used? Who says, we'll do a poll, and whoever wins is the answer, all right? Just kidding. That's not how we interpret scripture. All right. The first one, apprehensive, trembling. Anyone? All right. Who says, like, fear of God? All right. Most are people like, I have no clue. I'm not raising my hand. All right. I believe it's the first. I believe it's saying, be apprehensive. Be careful. How do I know that? Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Okay? We are to be afraid. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 2. For the good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the unbelieving generation in the wilderness heard the good news of God. But that same message did not benefit them because they were not believers. They, did not, they were not united by faith. And he's saying, you've heard the good news just like those who fell in the wilderness. But just because you've heard it doesn't mean it's benefited you. Why didn't it benefit them? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They had evil, unbelieving hearts. They heard the message all the time. They didn't care. So he creates a similarity and a contrast. Similarly, they all heard the gospel. Contrast, those who believed were benefited by the message. Those who disbelieved were not benefited by the message. They had evil, unbelieving hearts. Those who believed, verse 3... What, what's true of those who believe? They enter, the they enter the rest. Those who don't believe, don't enter the rest. And again, as we saw earlier, that, that disbelief is the disobedience that we're talking about here. So the disobedience they're guilty of was unbelief. So what are we supposed to be afraid of? Unbelief. Unbelief. And again, unbelief is not the same as doubt. My former pastor illustrated it this way. He said when he was growing up, when he was growing up, he'd play outside with his friends, right, all the time. His parents had one rule, stay away from the highway. There was a busy highway nearby. Fear the highway. Did that mean they spent their entire day looking at the highway trembling with fear? No. <laughs> no. Wondering, will I ever wander toward the highway? No. The fear of the highway allowed them to experience freedom far away from it. If you saw one of his friends wandering toward the highway, you would not call out to him, reminding of the freedom they enjoy in the yard. You would call out to him, warning him of the danger of the highway. We are to be afraid, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And, 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 and it's actually this... this Carefulness of unbelief that actually allows us to enjoy the freedom of belief. 
the, the writer is talking to a mixed group of people. Some are genuinely saved while others are just along for the ride. He doesn't know who is who, so he gives a serious warning to the whole group. Fear. Because just because you're along for the ride doesn't mean you've make, you'll make it to the destination. Some of you don't truly believe, so take your journey seriously. Maybe another illustration would help here. So have you ever met someone who has a lot of confidence about something and they shouldn't? All right, you know, our youngest, Benji, right? He has a lot of confidence when he shouldn't have confidence, all right? We'll be eating his supper, I'll look over, and he's standing up on his high chair, right? Just dancing on his tray, okay? Very confidently. Should he be so confident? No, no he should not, all right? Or, um, you know, the, the, the story, the five little monkeys jumping on the bed, right? They're all, they're all confidently jumping, they're not thinking about the consequences, What's the most loving advice, right? No more monkeys jumping on the bed, right? Go to sleep, rest, <laughs> okay? You know, so so th there's, there's actually much wisdom in calling for overconfident people to be afraid. And given the, the, the real reality of self-deception, because within any given church, including this one, there are people that have evil, unbelieving hearts while all the while they are deceiving themselves thinking they're okay. The most loving thing to tell them is you need to stop and you need to be afraid because just because you're along for the ride doesn't mean you bought into the message. Just because you professed faith doesn't mean you possess faith. At the same time, there's a great comfort. Those who have believed, enter that rest. They have Christ. They have come to share with Christ but those who have a confidence when they shouldn't need to, the only thing that will actually bring them to their senses is a warning of fear. Let's look at the other command down in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strive means making every effort or take pains to enter that rest. Or if I'm going to continue my streak of finding Nemo illustrations, just keep swimming, all right? <laughs> or to adapt it to our discussion, just keep believing. I almost said don't stop believing, but I don't want anyone to break out into song, all right? Um, just keep believing, all right? What's the reason we should strive? Because the author doesn't want to see anyone fall by the same sort of disobedience, namely unbelief. See, what do believing people do? They run. They pursue Christ. We'll see this later in Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but they see it, saw them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they seek a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. True faith in Christ is not dependence on a past action. True faith in Christ is confidence in a future reality. Assurance of salvation is not depending on a prayer you recited when you were five. Assurance of salvation is a hope 
that the rest is in front of you? Why is depending on a past action not saving faith? Because when God redeems your heart, he gives you a believing heart that keeps on believing. And if you have been given that heart, what would, you, what would, your, what, what, what would, you, would it look like? It would look like someone striving to enter that rest. Assurance is found by looking ahead to your hope, not just looking backward to a prayer. Let me illustrate this by another passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, that's the same Greek word as the word strive, to have the full assurance of what? Hope until the end. Most people seek assurance of salvation by looking back. But assurance also comes from looking forward. Think of the parable of the soils. We looked at this on Sunday, right? You're talking to the plant that is, among, that is in rocky soil. And the plant in rocky soil says, I'm not quite sure I'm saved. Would you assure them by saying, well, you received the seed, right? Would that be a sufficient basis of assurance? No. Because he has no root. You need to get out of the rocks, right? You, you do not fully understand the gospel. You have not fully embraced the gospel. You received it eagerly with joy, the parable says, but if you just say, well, just look back at some time when you received the gospel, that doesn't necessarily mean, yes, I'm definitely saved. There are plenty of people that have prayed a prayer that are not saved. That person has no root. He has no saving faith. Instead, he needs to look ahead and ask himself, where am I placing my faith? Rather than, where did I place my faith? There's a big difference there. And he might find the answers he's looking for. Right? The Apostle Paul says in, in Philippians 3, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And very quickly, we have five minutes left. Again, we've talked about... <laughs> Two very sobering commands. Fear and strive. In the last chapter, take care and exhort each other. And finally, we get to some familiar territory in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we give it account. Okay? So, we, we, we've often quoted this text as describing the word of God and its power, but we rarely connect the verses to the context. What's the first word of verse 12? Four. So, fear, strive, because the word of God is active and powerful and it discerns your thoughts and intentions and no creature is hidden from his sight. So what function is verses 12 and 13 uh, serving in the context? Why does he bring up the word of God in connection with these warnings? Any thoughts there? Yes? Jesus quoted scripture because that's what he knew had the power to be able to 
live the life and also to defeat Satan. Okay. Yeah. So we look at the example of Jesus and, and how he, he used the power of Scripture as he, as he followed his mission, right? And that's the power to defeat sin. Good. Any other thoughts? Yes. yes. We really must be real about what's in our heart mm-hmm. because he knows it anyway. All right, so, so that's an interesting thing. When we talk about self-deception, right? We can deceive other people. Can we deceive God? We cannot. Okay. What else? What else do you think this, this passage is, is contributing to the conversation? Yes. The Word of God tells us how mm. to strive. Correct. What to fear. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the way I see it, the... The description of the word of God is meant to be a reason for why we should strive to enter the rest. Verse 12, the word of God reveals your heart. That's what it's saying, verse 12. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Verse 13 talks about how the eyes of God sees your heart. And these two truths answer two problems. If if we're going through this passage, perhaps you ask two questions, or you, you, in frustration, say one of two things. I can't know my heart. Perhaps you've thought that as we've gone through these warnings. I can't know. I can't know my heart. What is verse 12 saying? Scripture can know your heart. Scripture can know your heart. When you can't discern your own thoughts and intentions of your own heart, what does the word of God do? It's living and active like a sharp two-edged sword, and it pierces and it discerns your own thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you're at a place where you're thinking, well, what do I do? I can't even know my own heart. It's the word of God that actually discerns it for you. For the person who's struggling and thinking, man, what do I do? How do I know for sure? God's word is the tool. It's the weapon that actually does it for you. And for those that are trying to hide and, 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 and say, I can keep this hidden. Verse 13 says, Oh, no, you cannot. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So just as God knew who had an unbelieving heart in the midst of the people of Israel in the wilderness... He knows exactly if you have a redeemed or unredeemed heart. And he has given us his word as the instrument to discern and cut through our hearts to reveal our thoughts and intentions. God knows your heart. In fact, he knows your heart better than you do. His word has the powerful ability to cut through the self-deception of your own heart. If you're just along for the ride, then, then you, should be, you should be afraid. You should fear. You may trick other people, but you can't trick God. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, are you earnestly pursuing him? Are you continuing and abiding in Jesus? Remember, this whole passage is saying he is better than anything. Don't look away. Don't turn away from him. He is faithful. Now, this discussion has been a little bit more serious. But sometimes we need a serious message. Because if we're never confronted with the danger of unbelief, if we're never pushed to take our, our faith seriously, we'll never confront it ourselves. Especially if we do have an evil, unbelieving heart, right? We're not going to tell ourselves that. These warnings are all connected to what was said back in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. 
lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Don't neglect Jesus. Don't neglect his gospel. Don't be just along for the ride. And if you feel a lack of confidence from this, this study, perhaps even uncertainty, remember, if it were all up to us, we would have no confidence at all. Right? As, as many theologians have said, if it were up to us, uh, to maintain our salvation, we would most definitely lose it. But the very next verses point to where our confidence is. And we'll look at next week where that confidence is found. He points to Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And in these verses, we're told that because we have this great high priest, we can approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Because of us? No, but because of him. And so these warning passages are difficult. They're uncomfortable. Man, we need them. But ultimately, if we conclude from this, well, it's all up to me, then we miss the point. This whole book is about how Christ accomplished everything. And, and, and the response of the heart of a believer is one who clings to Christ. And we must never deceive ourselves into thinking, because I'm going through the motions, because I've claimed it, that I'm a follower of him. A follower of him is one who clings faithfully to Christ. Stephanie. Um, I think the last words in verse 13 are important to remember, too, that you have to give an account to him. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah, that gives a very sobering reality that, that, that he is the one to whom we answer, not anyone else. Well, I have to... Yeah, go ahead, David. I have a quick, like, trans, translational question. Yeah. Uh, King James in verse 8 says, For Jesus had given them rest. And I know the traditional name for Jesus was Yeshua. Right. Joshua. Yeah. Just a translation. I think that's a translation issue. It, it is referring to Joshua there. Um, but Jesus is a form of the same name. Right. Um, and so, uh, but yes, it, Jesus here really wouldn't make much sense because it's talking in terms of the, um, the Old Testament people. Right. And, uh, and then Joshua being the leader of the people, right? If Joshua had given them rest, then he wouldn't speak of another day later on. So, yeah, that's just a translation thing. It's the same name. It's just, it's being rendered in a different way. Good. All right. Well, I've got to close it up, and, uh, and next time we'll have a little bit more of a comforting and, uh, you know, restful um, passage to look at. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you that your word, uh, your word sometimes comforts us. Your word sometimes leads us graciously. Sometimes your word reassures us. Uh, sometimes your, your word wakes us up. Sometimes your word warns us sternly. And Lord, I pray that you would give us humility to look at our own hearts and to look out for each other. That we would not allow anyone to fall into the deceitfulness of sin. Give us your grace to be guided by your truth. We thank you for your word that discerns our hearts when we cannot. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would seek to enter that rest, that we would not be grow, grow complacent um, toward you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.